I'm sure I don't have to tell you, but uh, we're at the completion of our second day together. Sometimes it's easy to lose track of time. And I know usually the first two or three days are sometimes seem like an eternity. Uh, and then we kind of think about another four or five days of this, and it, it's, uh, it strikes terror in our hearts. Um, first two or three days are usually pretty hard. So tonight I'd like to talk about the energy of self-doubt. You know, most of us uh, arrive at retreat, especially those who are new, but even those who have been practicing for a while, and all of us have, you know, listened to tapes or listened to inspiring uh, words about the Dharma. Uh, most of us have read at least one or two books that talk about liberation and inner freedom. I'm talking about tasting really deep peace, sense of inner contentment and joy. And of course, those words uh, help get us here. Uh, But sometimes those words get in the way. Because when we start sitting and walking and really doing it ourselves, um, that's usually not uh, the first experience we have, is deep peace. A lot of times we're going through our sittings and it's basically going between restlessness and deep sleepiness going from one pole to the next, with a lot of wandering mind in between, uh, certainly a lot of uh, doubt also. When we talk about doubt in practice, there really are a couple of different kinds of doubt. The Buddha made a very clear distinction about the two kinds of doubt. One doubt is the self-doubt, which I'll be talking about tonight mostly. But there's another kind of doubt which he encouraged and that was really the doubt of inquiry, really questioning. It's a famous discourse called the Kalama Discourse of the Buddha where some villagers approached him and, and listened to his teachings and had a lot of questions and really questioned the, kind of the validity or the legitimacy of his teachings because they had been exposed to so many different teachers. And what he said to them was, maybe it was a little bit surprising to them, but what he said to them was, you know, good. You know, glad you have questions. Uh, you shouldn't rely on my words. You shouldn't rely on books, authorities, the teachings. Instead, really, the only thing you should rely on is your own experience, your own direct experience. But there's one little glitch, which is if you want to taste it, you have to do it. You, know, you have to try the, try the practice and really give it a chance. You know? And of course, everybody here in this room probably already has a sense of that. Why would you be here? You know, if, you, if, if you've already read about the teachings and read about other people's experiences, well, you realize that it's really not enough to do that. You know, all of us could be sitting home somewhere, uh, feet up in the hassock, nice cup of tea, uh, maybe some music in the background and reading some inspiring dharma. And maybe we've all done that at least once or twice. But we also realize that that's not enough. You know, that's not enough. We have to really get on the cushion. We have to be willing to look at, the, at our experience. We take a look at exactly what's going on within us, not within somebody else. So inquiry, looking for yourself. It's really at the heart of this particular practice. It's the heart of Vipassana. But there's another kind of doubt, which is self-doubt. Which is, the, which is kind of a reaction uh, that the mind goes through when it faces difficulties. You know, self-doubt arises out in our everyday life when we get confronted with something difficult, something unpleasant, something that's scary. But also self-doubt arises a lot in practice, in sitting practice, when we, when we encounter the usual obstacles, you know, the usual challenges, the difficulties that pretty much everybody you know, has to face at one time or another in practice. And usually, uh, in the f- first few days, uh, pretty much all of them uh, show, show up. The first challenge that we encounter quite often when we come on retreat, and a lot of people have been reporting this in, their, in the discussion groups, is, is, the ch- is, is really the challenge of, of physical pain. You know, there's a lot of physical adjustment uh, coming, sitting, you know, many hours a day, slow walking meditation, you know, sitting in a position that you're not used to. 
And so really that, that does become a, a real challenge for many of us. And um, in working with pain, you know, working with pain, it's very important to use a little bit of common sense in working with pain. First of all, recognizing that, sure, my body is adjusting. That there is a certain kind of pain in the body, in the back, in the knees, in the leg. And that really comes from sitting. Uh, one recognizes that one isn't doing uh, really harm to your body. You're not sitting there in agony. And so maybe it's important to just kind of sit with it. You know, see if you can sit relatively still, even with some discomfort in the body. You know, it's very empowering to be able to do that. You know, to be able to sit and not back away from pain so, so quickly. Not, not to run away from it so fast. Just the act of sitting. But there are different kinds of pain. And one kind of pain is, is something we really need to not just sit and be with, but you know, a lot of us, uh, everybody in this room uh, isn't as young as they used to be. Definitely. You're not as young as you used to be. We may think we are. Uh, we may tell ourselves that, but we're not. Our bodies change. Uh, and some of our, our bodies are quite vulnerable. We've, we've got a history sometimes of injuries or strains. And so you have to learn the middle path in taking up this practice. And the middle path is, is not to take a particularly macho attitude. You know, there's no real inherent virtue in sitting in agony, you know, in sitting in really excruciating pain. If you find yourself sitting in a lot of pain, I mean, really strong pain, you know, you can observe it for a little while, notice some fear, notice some aversion, but, you know, move. You know, shift your body mindfully if you're in a lot of pain. One thing that new people don't always allow themselves to do, I know Larry and myself and, and many people have been sitting for a while, uh, we have a repertoire of positions. Uh, you know, we don't always sit in the same position. And you should feel free as a new, new person and even somebody who's been practicing for a while. You know, sometimes we get attached to fixed to a certain posture and we don't really give ourselves permission to try some other posture. But, you know, you can sit cross-legged. Um, you can sit on a bench. You know, I sit on a bench. Larry often sits on a bench. A lot of people around the room sitting on benches. Or you can all, always sit in a chair. You know, sitting in a chair is not second-class practice. Sometimes we think that way, but it's not. You know? So alternating positions can be very helpful, especially in the first few days, you know, when the body is really adjusting. You know, it's that balance that you want to work with practice. You don't want to always want to be moving every time there's a little discomfort comes up. But at the same time, if you're in a lot of physical pain and it's really strong, well, then you have to do something about it. Move or stand up. You know, that's another way. Standing up, not just when you're sleepy, but standing up if you're in a lot of physical pain. Sit in a chair. Alternate. Quite often, the discomfort or the pain begins to compete with the breathing. There were a few questions today about that. What to do about that. Generally speaking, you want to keep your attention you know, anchored on the breathing. You know, we're in the shamatha phase of the practice right now, where we're putting a lot of energy, you know, where we're focusing the attention primarily on the breath. You know, and, keep, and we keep coming back to the breathing when we get pulled away. But once again, there are a lot of compelling things pulling us away, and sometimes strong physical pain really starts taking over. And, and, and we really get into kind of a conflict of tension about what to do about that, whether we should pay attention to the pain. Are we cheating if we pay attention to the pain? Um, no, you're not. If there's a lot of pain, you should feel free to bring your mindfulness to the pain itself. You know, see, if you can, uh, see if you can observe it. See if you can bring mindfulness to the pain, which is non-judgmental attention. You know, simply observing the physical sensations themselves. And perhaps being aware of some reaction, you know, being aware of how you're holding that pain. There may be some fear, you know, there may be some anger or aversion in the mind, and so being aware of that. And noticing it, acknowledging it, maybe shifting your body if it's really strong, or go back to your breath. You know? Don't stay on the physical sensations for a real long time. You don't want to replace the physical pain. Um, you don't want to replace that with... with a, Reverse. You don't want to 
replace the breath with physical pain. You don't want that to be your anchor. It's not your anchor. It's primarily the breath. But now you have permission, really, to bring your attention to that. See if you can observe the characteristics of the pain. Really begin to see if you can see the true nature of it. Sometimes just by observing the pain, really being aware of your reaction to it, the mind comes into balance. And a lot of times it's our reaction to the pain. It's really stronger than the actual pain itself. That's a, that's a common insight to have. That often it's the fear, or the anger, or, or the reaction to the pain itself. Other challenges. Other challenges. There's kind of a category of difficult energies, or difficult mind states that one encounters in practice. In a lot of the work in practice, you know, a lot of the work in practice uh, uh, comes from confronting these energies, learning how to work with them skillfully, you know, learning about what wise effort is in relationship to these difficulties. They're called the five hindrances. And the reason they're called hindrances is because there's absolutely nothing wrong with any of these energies. There's nothing good about these energies. There's nothing bad about these energies. But the hindrances, only when we get caught by them, only when we get pushed around, only when we identify or get lost in them, then they become hindrances. Then they begin to overwhelm the mindfulness. They throw us out of balance. Confidence comes when we begin to learn how to work with these energies. You know, these energies are very natural. They're a natural part of what it means to be a human being, and they're a natural part of what it means to, to do this particular practice, is to, is to meet these energies. And the first energy is called sense desire, which is really that wanting mind, the mind that wants pleasant things. Once again, nothing wrong with desire, but it's when we get hooked by it, when we get caught by it, and the way that shows itself up in the sitting is through the mind that fantasizes all the time, the mind that fantasizes, or the mind that's planning, the mind that's kind of craving, clinging, imagining, You're moving out of the present moment, You're moving away from the breath and the sitting, and going somewhere else that's a lot more pleasant. A very common experience. Oftentimes, once again, it shows itself up as the wandering mind. All of us have at least been aware of the wandering mind a few times during this retreat. How to work with desire. How to work with this energy. It's a very compelling energy, very powerful energy. Uh, how to work with it. One thing you don't want to do is you don't need to judge it. It's very common. When we begin, to, we, we, when we begin the practice, we have certain ideas about the way the practice is supposed to unfold, certain ideas about what we should experience, a lot of ideas about what we shouldn't experience. And one of the things that I think we shouldn't think we experience is the wandering mind as often as we do. And so often there's this judgment about the wandering mind. We're being mindful of the breath, but then we start wandering. We notice the wandering mind and boom, in comes the judgment. I'm not doing it. I'm doing something wrong. You know, I can't get this. And then there's a coming back to the breath, eventually. Okay. So often, so often I saw that in my own practice. Every time I would wander, I'd come back, but there'd be a judgment in between. So being aware of that judgment, just being mind, simply mindful of the judgment itself, will soften the judgment. You don't have to get rid of the judgment. You don't have to judge the judging. Simply be mindful that you're judging yourself when, the, when you notice that the mind has wandered away. And then just let it go and come back to the breath. If we don't, if we don't become mindful of the wandering mind or become mindful of the judging of the wandering mind, quite often what happens is that we slide into doubt. We slide into doubt because wandering mind is so common. It's, it's really what the training, so much of the training right now is about, is recognizing when the mind is wandering and coming back to the breath. So if there's a lot of judgment about that, you know, something that we really can't control, if there's a lot of judgment about it, it's very easy for that judgment to slide into self-doubt, thinking you're doing something wrong, where really you're just training the mind. And because the mind is so used to thinking, that, that's, of course, is what's going on in the sitting. There's a lot of thinking. So not to judge it. That's one side. That doesn't help. It just reinforces it. 
the other side is is kind of a, the other side of the extreme is is to really indulge in it, you know, to to uh, really feed it. You know, I mean, fantasies quite quite frankly are often a lot more interesting. Not always, but a lot of, a lot of times much more interesting than the breath, especially at the beginning of practice. Sometimes after practice develops, the breath can be much more satisfying and much more interesting than any fantasy that we can conjure up. But quite often at the beginning of practice, and even uh, along the way, uh, fantasies, um, you know, we like to indulge in them. Time goes by a little quicker. We stop thinking about time. We start thinking about all the things we're going to do after retreat. And it makes doing the retreat a lot easier. The way to work with that indulging is to begin to use a little bit of wisdom around that. Really beginning to see how indulging in fantasy, I think most of us know this by now, whether it's on the cushion or in our life, you know, when we get attached to fantasy, you know, often it becomes the substitute for the real thing. You know, and it leads to a lot of frustration. It leads to a lot of discontentment with what's happening in the present moment. That's the consequences of getting attached to fantasy. Because quite often it's, what it's doing is it's taking us away from really what is happening right now. You know, for, to really exactly the way things are. Instead of learning to, to accept the way things are and to look at them in a very deep way, we, we instead go the easy route. We indulge in the mind that fantasizes because it's pleasant. It's easier. It's a quick fix. So restraining that impulse. If you notice, if you know you have a tendency to do that when you're sitting, you know, to indulge in it, to, to go into it, to really elaborate on it, proliferate on it, really consciously doing that. Restrain that impulse and say, not now. I'll save that fantasy for later. But not now. Right now, I'm going to really try to do the practice. I'm going to do my best to keep coming back, keep making that choice over and over again to be with the breath. Really making a conscious choice. It's not repressing the sense desire. It's not repressing the fantasy. It's really making a conscious choice of where you're going to put your attention. You're not pushing it away. You're not swatting it away. You're just noticing it and then simply deciding, hey, this is what I came here for. I'm going to go back to the breath. I can fantasize anywhere. No doubt about that. No doubt about that. And we have. Okay? So coming back to the breath and really doing it takes a certain amount of restraint, a, certain, a little bit of willpower, but it's well, well worth it. So working with sense desire, coming back to the breath right now as a way of bringing the mind into balance. And then after a while, the more practice we get, the more empty we see all those fantasies, the less seductive they become, because we begin to discover an inner contentment that comes when the mind gets a bit more concentrated. You may not be tasting that now, but if you continue the practice, you will. You know, we begin to taste a lot more contentment with being with what's happening in the present moment. The mind starts settling and calming down. And we really begin to taste a peace that so, doesn't depend on fantasy doesn't depend on conjuring up anything, but rather comes from a deep acceptance of what's happening right now. So we don't have to do anything. We don't have to try to make anything happen. We can just be with ourselves. And so coming back to the breath is nurturing that, that ability to be in the present moment in a full way. The second challenge is really the flip side of sense desire, and that's not wanting. And no great surprise, the things we don't want are unpleasant. You know, we don't want uh, we don't want unpleasant experiences. Very common. Okay, is, it may even seem very natural to us to really not want the unpleasantness. It doesn't mean that we should want the pleasant the unpleasantness. But the not wanting is really a reaction. It's a conditioned reaction to the unpleasant. It isn't completely natural. And with practice and training, it's possible to see that. It's possible to experience deep equanimity and peace in the face of unpleasantness. And when one, when one tastes that, you really see that it's really a reaction. You know, this pushing away of the unpleasant, this pushing away of the painful, the contracting around it. It's, it's, a, it's a conditioned reaction. It's what we've learned. It's how we've learned to respond to pain. In this culture, no doubt about it, pleasant is good, pain is bad. You know, and, that, and that's our conditioning. So when we encounter, whether it's physical pain or whether we encounter emotional pain, the first reaction, quite often, is, oh, wish it wasn't here. What can I do about it? How can I get rid of it? 
And it's that kind of reaction to the unpleasantness that really reinforces doubt in the mind. It generates fear because we're not always in control of pleasant or unpleasant. Unpleasant is a fact of life. You can't live a day in your life without experiencing something unpleasant. It's a fact of life. How we respond to that unpleasantness is what's going to make the difference between whether we suffer or whether we don't. We don't have to suffer necessarily with unpleasant. And a lot of the suffering with unpleasantness is because we're aversive to it. We contract around it. We build up all sorts of ideas about it. Several people talked about the fact that they had a lot of fear when some unpleasantness came up uh, in the sitting. Very important to see that reaction of aversion and begin to bring mindfulness to that reaction. If you're in a lot of pain, be aware of the aversion. If you're in in some kind of unpleasant mind state like uh, worry or anxiety or fear, oftentimes, once again, there's there's aversion to it. So be mindful of those reactions every once in a while. Be mindful of the way you're holding uh, unpleasantness. Once again, you want to anchor yourself. You, know, you want to anchor yourself in the breathing, but also be aware when you encounter things that are painful or unpleasant, things that you don't like. Be aware of your relationship to it. Not by analyzing or figuring it out, but really being present and noticing how we contract. In the sitting, for instance, when you're f- sitting in a lot of physical pain, once again, there's aversion. There's a contraction, both in the mind and the body. One way of working with pain is that consciously, it's not an easy practice, but it's a helpful practice sometimes. If the pain isn't really excruciating, it's, it's actually not always so hard, which is, you know, just simply relax. Try to relax the other parts of your body. Just making that effort to say, ah, oh, okay, just let things be. And you really soften and relax into it. It's amazing, you know, really, how often that can just really soften the whole environment. You know, just allow us to be much more accepting of the pain. And all the agitation and all the doubt that it was stirring up can really just, oh, yeah, this is all it is. It's just pain. So relaxing the body is a very helpful way of working with aversion. Otherwise, you know, if there's a lot of pain going on and you're not giving it any attention, you're pushing it away, you know, a lot of times we start contracting in the body. We start using up a lot of energy. Sometimes when there's a lot of aversion in the mind, something very helpful. You know, especially in the first few days, things can get kind of claustrophobic. Uh, You can get tired of your neighbor quite quickly. Um, You know, if you are feeling tight and contracted, feel free to go for a walk outdoors. You know, look at nature. Connect to the beauty of the woods. You know, stand there mindfully noticing seeing. You know, being mindful of seeing. Really allowing the softness and the beauty to really bring the mind more into balance. It's not running away from the unpleasantness. It's not you're doing something wrong. You're just really using the beauty, using the environment to bring the mind more into balance. Because that's what all the work is with the hindrances, is to bring the mind back into balance. It's not to get rid of sense desire. It's not to get rid of aversion. Rather, what you want to do is bring the mind more into balance so that you can be with those experiences without being so reactive. And there's lots of little tricks of the trade that you'll learn along the way in terms of how to work with hindrances. You know, people have been on the path longer. Um, one of the things that they begin to do is they develop more balance with the hindrances. You know, they begin, no, they know that two o'clock sitting, you know, for sleepiness. We're getting to, to that next. You know, they know that there's a certain amount of adjustment and physical discomfort in the sitting, and they're not freaked out by it, you know, because they've been there, and they remember, and so they tend to relax a little bit more. They're not so reactive. That happens with practice, with training. That will happen to you if you knew, if you stay long enough. The third is uh, sleepiness, which has really been, a, I feel, a pretty strong one uh, for us these first couple of days. And, and starting out with the time change, uh, it was really a tough way to start a retreat. Uh, we really lost some, t- some, lost some sleep, I felt it, and um, so sort of just beginning to catch up a little bit here. Um, sleepiness is a difficult hindrance difficult. Uh, different cl- First of all, it's difficult because uh, we judge it. We judge it. You know, we judge it when we sit. Uh, we come with certain expectations. We certainly never expected to come to a retreat and be sleepy the whole time. You know, that's not what we had hoped would happen. Um, when we go to bed, 
you know, somebody commented today that they're sleeping on the cushion and they go to bed and they're wide awake. <laughs> you know? And it's like, it shows you the relativity of sleepiness because there's definitely times we want sleepiness and there's other times when we don't. And we definitely usually don't want it on the cushion. So sleepiness hits and there's a lot of judgment about it. Uh, once again, it's, it's very important to recognize, you know, a lot of people. Uh, a helpful thing about the groups, uh, especially for new people, is that you begin to see just how many people. We, we went around my group and we asked how many people have been experiencing sleepiness. I think everybody raised their hand saying that they had a pretty strong case of it. And I think it's very helpful to re recognize that sleepiness really comes with the territory, especially in the first few days. You know, first, you know we're flying pretty high out there, you know, moving pretty quick. Uh, lots and lots of stimulation, lots and lots of demands. And all of a sudden we come to a retreat and look at how simple the structure is. You know, little, look at how little we have to do. And you know, there's an energy drop, almost inevitably. There's also a release of tension. You know, it comes through mindfulness practice and there's a release of that tension. And often that kind of deflates us in a way. It's a very natural uh, response to, to being on retreat. So try to be accepting of it. You know, at the same time, it takes a lot of perseverance. Working with all these hindrances, wise effort is being gentle, not judging any of them. The judgment of sleepiness will not help it. Will not, it will not wake you up. It will not make your life any easier. Guaranteed. Okay, judging it isn't going to help, but at the same time, you do need to be persevering. Showing up at the 2 o'clock sit. Somebody asked me today, they feel like it's a waste of time. And I know that feeling very well. Uh, you know, you're sitting there and you just can't bear it. And, and you know, it's constantly sleepy. Um, and, you know, you don't even get to one in-breath. Uh, 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 you know, you, you remember trying to get to that in-breath, but you don't remember the end of the in-breath. Uh, you're gone. Um, extremely common. And, and what I said to them, and I say this all the time, because I, I've, ta I've experienced this myself, is that uh, the 2 o'clock sitting is a valuable sit. You know, it's a valuable time to sit through sleepiness. Even if you know your sleepiness, something happens in this practice. That's all I can tell you. You'll have to see it for yourself. But something happens in this practice that you don't always know. You know, you can't always evaluate and say exactly what is going on. You know, it's not like you get a report card. Uh, and we do give ourselves report cards. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. You, oftentimes every sitting. Um, but they really aren't based on much. Uh, you can't really trust that report card. Um, so, uh, with sleepiness, you know, just the, just the intention to sit through it, you know, and, and stand up and open your eyes, of course, doing all that, working with that. You know, uh, somebody once said in practice, you know, the, thing that, the, the qualities that we encourage in this practice is relaxation and attentiveness. And really, it's, it's about that, really. Learning how to really deeply relax and at the same time be attentive. While at the two o'clock sit, you're halfway there. <laughs> you've got the relaxation and now all you have to do is learn how to pay attention simple not so easy but simple one thing you can do is just like I said keep with the breath you know if you're feeling particularly sleepy stay on the breathing stay on the breathing just do your best to just you know don't evaluate or analyze it just do your best um, if you can't get to the breath um, very common, there's not enough attention. Just feel the cushion. Simply feel the cushion that you're sitting on. Simply just feel the contact of the body with the cushion. And sometimes that's enough to just kind of keep you half there, keep you half present. I'll tell you a little secret about sleepiness if you're new. Many people have been practicing for a while, they find this out. I don't want to build up any hopes that this is going to happen, but it does, it does happen um, sometimes. Uh, with sleepiness, um, like I said, you know, it is a very relaxed state. And when you put a lot of effort out, you know, you're willing to sit there with the sleepiness. Sometimes what happens is when you begin to just sort of be more mindful, that's one way of working with, mind, with sleepiness, is to be mindful of the sleepiness. Really paying attention to the actual physical sensations of sleepiness. For me, I feel very strong sensations at the top of my head and my eyes. You know, so my attention will go there if I'm feeling particularly sleepy. You know, if it's real strong, that's what you should do. Otherwise, you stay with the breath. But observing, really beginning to see sleepiness as this process. It's not so personal to you. 
you know, look around maybe once every day or two at other meditators. That's about all you need to look around. But look at, you know, just open your eyes and you'll see that head nodding. And you know you're not alone. Um, but one secret, one secret. Don't look around too much, though. Um, we do a lot of that up here, but uh, you don't have to do it back there. Um, but one secret uh, that does happen um, is that if you can try to be as attentive as, as you can while the sleepiness, sometimes just like that, you know, you could be falling over on your cushion, and then just all of a sudden, boom, you know, that whole fog, that mud, whatever it is, that feeling, just lifts very quickly. And what you find yourself in is a very relaxed, clear, focused place, you know, where the mind is very calm and steady and clear. And it really comes from having worked with the sleepiness, you know, from having just put up with it. So you really do have to put up with a certain amount of sleepiness and be willing to do that. I've really been impressed by just what the attendance has been like at the 2 o'clock sit, and also, uh, you know, just knowing how much sleepiness there can be. People keep showing up and keep doing it. It's, it's really great. So, if you judge sleepiness, it will lead to a lot of doubt. You know, if you judge it, you think it shouldn't be happening, it leads to, it really reinforces that feeling of self-doubt like you're doing something wrong. If you're feeling sleepy, it does not mean that you're doing something wrong. That's all I can tell you. The fourth is restlessness. Once again, the flip side of sleepiness is restlessness, agitation. Very common place. And once again, shifting between sleepy and restless is very common. One way of working with that is sitting very still. The fourth is restlessness. Once again, the flip side of sleepiness is restlessness, agitation. Very common place. And once again, shifting between sleepy and restless is very common. One way of working with that is sitting very still. Believe it or not, sitting very still. It's hard to do it at the beginning, but with a little bit of training, it gets easier. You know, just taking a vow of sitting for two or three or four minutes, you know, five minutes, where you're not going to move. You know, you're just going to sit there and die of restlessness, but you're not going to move. You know? And you really make that vow. It can be a very powerful thing to do. I mean, it can really help settle the mind down. It really can help bring a lot of calm to the mind. You know, you see that restlessness is just a state of mind. You know, when we get caught up in it, we forget. We forget. We take it for, you know, something permanent. This is the way it is. I'm doing something wrong. In kicks in the self-doubt. You're not doing anything wrong. It's just restlessness is coming up. Once again, it takes a lot of perseverance to be willing to work with that. Keep coming back to the breath. If you keep coming back to the breath over and over again, what does happen eventually is that samadhi, a concentration, will build, will develop. It might not be from one sitting to the next or from one moment to the next, but it will build over the retreat. Whether you re- realize it or not, it will build. And uh, concentration is really what brings restlessness into balance. Restlessness really is a reflection of a lack of concentration. So every time you go back to the breath and you try to bring your attention to the breath, every time the mind wanders, you're building concentration and you're you're, uh, really helping uh, in some ways to diffuse some of the the restlessness. You begin to nurture another quality besides restlessness, which is concentration, which is a mind that's very collected. So coming back to the breath, very helpful way of working with it. Finally, we get to self-doubt, which is the fifth hindrance, and many people claim it, uh, claim that it's the most difficult of them all. And I don't know if it's the most difficult of them all. I think it depends on your karma. You know, it depends on everybody. I think has certain propensities towards sense desire. Others have a lot of aversion in the mind. Others sleepiness is one retreat after the next. Sometimes we're ne- never, you know, sometimes restlessness is just really predominant. That's a predominant theme in our retreats. But self-doubt is a, is a difficult one. Self-doubt's a difficult energy. One reason why is because it tends to undermine. You know, it arises in relationship to the other hindrances quite often. So not only are we dealing with the hindrance of self-doubt, but often it's really coming on the heels of 
some other hindrance, like aversion or restlessness or sleepiness or sense desire. You know, and that's throwing us out of balance and it's moving us into self-doubt. And that once again, self-doubt, that feeling like you can't do it, you know, that there's something wrong, um, that, you know, you do, you know that, that, that something isn't right, that feeling uh, that you're failing. Uh, that self-doubt then, of course, reinforces the hindrances and they get stronger. It leads to more restlessness. So why is self-doubt so powerful? You know, it's a powerful energy, particularly, I think, in this culture. You know, we have a, a lot of us have it uh, really quite strong. And why self-doubt is such a, a challenge, I think, for us in practice is because self-doubt is, is really about, is really built on a legacy of the past. And it's really built on our conditioning, you know, our social conditioning, our f- uh, family conditioning. Uh, the Buddha described... Um, the Buddha described the mind that is very clear, very stable, very alert, very peaceful, as a clear forest pool. That's an image that he uses a lot to describe the mind that's really highly developed through training. And he describes, he's, he talked a lot about the hindrances, a lot, of the same hindrances that we're talking about tonight. And he describes self-doubt as mud stirred up from the bottom of that pond mud stirred up from the bottom, really from the past, from our conditioning. And it really clouds the present moment. One, of our, one kind of conditioning that, that reinforces doubt uh, in practice and in our lives, I think, in general, is, is that a lot of us really have a, a very fixed sense, uh, sense of who we are. You know, this, this is a self-image that we've really picked up on over the years. Um, whether it's from parents, family, social conditioning, uh, we have that. We have an idea about who we are. We also sometimes have an idea about what's possible. You know, we carry around this idea that what's possible and what isn't possible. And it really it's built on an image about who we are. It's not built on what uh, what's possible. You know, because self-image limits possibilities. You know, clearly it closes us down. So we have this idea, and then what happens? We sit. We start feeling a lot of restlessness or sleepiness. And the first thing that comes to our mind is, I can't do this practice. This practice isn't for me. And it's because we have an idea about ourselves. We really set ourselves up in a ways. A lot of ways we set ourselves up for the fall, you know, because we have certain ideas about who we are, what's possible, and what isn't. And when we encounter something difficult, oh, of course. Of course it's true. I knew it all along. So self-image is part of the conditioning. It certainly reinforces doubt. In our society, um, you know, we evaluate. No doubt about it. You know, Larry and I teach a lot in Cambridge. Uh, a lot of highly uh, formally educated people. Um, you know, where evaluation is like second nature. I mean, they've been evaluated all their lives, and, and they continue to continue their practice of evaluating others. Um, and you know, evaluation really can. Uh, you know, maybe it's necessary. I think it, I think it is in certain situations. But we're very attached to our evaluations. And what, what is, what's the criteria? What do we evaluate our experience? What do we evaluate other people? In this culture, we evaluate each other really according to success, often the models of success and failure. You know, we, we often have very clear ideas about what successful is and what failure is. And of course, we take those ideas, you know, we take that set of values and we, of course, put it on top of our practice. You know, oh, you know, I got to 10 with my breath. That's a successful sitting. Oh, you know, I'm feeling really sleepy. That's, that's really not a successful sitting. There's something, I, I really have to work harder. That's not the way it should be going. You know, that idea of success and failure, the problem with the idea of success and failure is it really doesn't, first of all, apply to this practice. There's no success and there's no failure. You may think there is, but there isn't. There is definitely no success and no failure. In fact, even in life, you know, what's, what is success? You know, life, quote, society, quote, job, status, money, whatever, um, even in that context, what is success and what is failure is really relative. You know, it's, very, it's a very, very slippery st- slope. Very slippery slope. What we take for success at one moment may not be what we take as success in, in the next moment. You know, what we take as failure, how often have we taken some experience as failure and then realized six months or a year down the road that really, this was an opportunity. This was something that really, it was, a, it was really good that this happened because it let us let go of the ambition or the tension or all the stuff that we were striving for that really didn't mean that much to us. 
You know, so success and failure, very relative. They're not absolute terms. Starting to run out of time here, and I'm not there yet. I'm not failing, though. <laughs> you might think I am, but I'm not. I'm going to go over about five minutes. <laughs> I'm going to have to really abbreviate my stories because I'm now I'm starting to get a couple of autobiographical things here. Um, I was an adult college student in my mid-30s. I kind of got on that wave of people going back to, you know, so people who bypassed their college years, their undergraduate college years. Uh, I got into the Dharma really about when I was about 20. And I came from a working class family, and I didn't, so wasn't that highly valued to go to school. So I bypassed it, got, went into work, and then got into the Dharma. And that really pretty much took over for a lot of years. And then at one, at one point, I decided I had to leave the nest. And I had to sort of go out on my own, and I, I did that for a while. And, uh, you know, I talked to a lot of different people, and they encouraged me to go to school. And so I did. I started at a community college and did okay, and then... Uh, Somehow, quite inexplicably, I, I ended up in this very elite, uh, private uh, liberal arts college, small college, and they gave me a whole bunch of money to go. Uh, I'm not sure if it was money well spent, but, they, <laughs> but I tricked them into letting me come anyway, and they paid my way. And uh, this, this school was very, very uh, exclusive liberal arts college, where really one of the, you sort of judged as one of the top schools in the, in the country for what it does. And, and so, of course, the kids that come, I'll call them kids, young adults that come uh, to this school, are really at the top of their class. You know, I mean, they really literally are at the top of their class academically. They're often the number one sort of top. I don't know how they judge them these days, but, but they're really up there. So, of course, they're used to a great deal of success, uh, really, uh, really complete success, really, academically. And then they come to a college full of the same type of people. Uh, and one of the things you see, and it was very predominant in this particular school, was just how insecure everybody was uh, around each other because they, they no longer were at the top of their class. And uh, you could see that they were really fearful of failure. And you could see that their attachment to that success that they had had, just how much tension that created in their minds, you know, and how much fear there was. In, in, and really, it was pretty overt. I mean, people used to um, really talk about the fact that people were afraid to even speak in class because they, that was one characteristic of classes. Discussions were very rarely very good. Of course, I came out of a Dharma world where sometimes you know, we're afraid to talk too, but mostly you know, people, after they open up, they begin to talk a lot. Um, in, in this particular scene, people wouldn't, wouldn't even open their mouths. They'd be afraid to say something wrong. And you could really see the tension around that attachment. And of course, you know, that's these people. But there's us too, and we have, we, have those, we have that conditioning too, and we take that whole model of success and failure, and we apply it oftentimes, like I said, to every sitting. And really, if we keep that model of success and failure, it's going to bring us a lot of suffering. It's better to let go of it. Recognize if you have that ambition or, or you have that fear, and recognize it, be mindful of it. But don't hang on to it, because it's going to drive you crazy if you evaluate every sitting or if you evaluate every day of a retreat in terms of whether you succeeded or failed or whether it's good or bad. So how to work with self-doubt? Well, certainly recognizing our conditioning can help. But being mindful of it. You know, once again, we're being mindful of the breathing. But when, you know, a hindrance arises, whether it's sleepiness or restlessness, you know, you can pay a little bit of attention, know that that's there. And then quite often we can see that sneaky feeling of self-doubt, that little discouragement or feeling of, uh, you know, failing or feeling, uh, sometimes it's not sneaky, sometimes it's very strong, it's like despair, really. You know, a feeling of, oh, not again, that kind of feeling. Be aware of that self-doubt. Be aware of it as a state of mind. It's very freeing to, to, to just acknowledge it, you know, and say, oh, there's self-doubt. See it as a state of mind. That's what it is. You may take it as the truth, as a real comment on your practice. 
but it's just the state of mind that's arising under certain conditions. And it also passes away when those conditions change. Your next sitting, you're really quiet. Where's the doubt? It's gone. The restlessness kicks in, the doubt kicks in. So recognizing is the state of mind. Be mindful of it when it comes up. Get to know it. Get to know the kind of conditions that it arises under. Not through figuring it out or analyzing it, but just paying attention to it when it does come up. You know, self-doubt is, is a lot like quicksand. You know, in fact, all the hindrances are a lot like quicksand. The more you struggle with them, the more you judge them, the more you deny that they're there, the more you wriggle, uh, really the deeper you go. Um, so what you want to do is learn how to be less reactive. Be a little bit more quiet. You know, if self-doubt comes up, it's just there. You know, you don't have to get rid of it. You don't have to give yourself a pep talk. Just recognize that it's there. Self-doubt's there, being mindful of it. That's the key. The key is being mindful, because when we're mindful of an experience, we're not feeding it. We're not reinforcing it. If you buy into the self-doubt and you get caught by it, that's when it's a hindrance. Otherwise, it's just an energy that's arising. You know, but if you get caught by it, if you get hooked into the self-doubt, you know, it becomes a hindrance. It becomes a very difficult energy to work with. You know, when you take it as the truth, you're in trouble. One antidote that the Buddha talked about in working with doubt was, uh, it's something that, uh, it's noble friendship and suitable conversation. That's one of the antidotes. And I, I like that antidote a lot. I think, it's, I think it's really valuable. We teach in a community of uh, practitioners uh, the Sangha in Cambridge is quite strong. And, and I think the Sangha, a lot of places, is growing. And I think that's one of the benefits of, of having uh, people who are on the path, people who value silence, people who value uh, awareness, sensitivity, caring. Um, and I think that can really help inspire us. Kind of, You know, when we hear about other people's difficulties, it, it really can help alleviate some of the doubts that we, that, that we, that we, that we confront on the path. So that's kind of a lot of when you, when you leave. We have a sangha here that's supporting us in a very silent way. And that helps a lot, just to see everybody show up. Another important way of um, developing faith or confidence is really taking on the, hind- uh, taking on, not the, taking on the precepts. Really, really restraining yourself or being more mindful of your actions and restraining from harmful activities. You know, in retreat, you're pretty well protected. But, you know, when we go in the world... Um, one of the easiest ways to undermine your confidence in yourself is to engage in really unskillful actions that bring you or other people suffering. Yeah. And so being more mindful and really using the precepts as guidelines can be very faith-inspiring. You know, when we decide to choose actions and make decisions based on wisdom and compassion, it really inspires us. You know, it really gives us a lot of confidence. You know, when we unconsciously play things out, or even when we do consciously play things out, uh, it really undermines us on the path. And the Buddha talked a lot about the fact that if we don't work with ethics in our life, it really clashes. It certainly affects the development of concentration and calm and wisdom. You know, so taking the precepts on or looking at them and examining them, learning more about them, very helpful way of developing confidence. Another way of developing faith, another way of bringing self-doubt into balance, uh, I've already talked about this some, which is, is, is what happens really with practice over a period of time, which is the development of equanimity, you know, that mind that becomes less reactive. You know, when you first come, you're first new, you know, the mind is very reactive, you know, really every sitting. You know, you have that evaluation of judgment, you know, if it's sleepy, it's bad. You know, there's a lot of reactivity to it. You've been practicing for a while and people... You know, after a while, even you'll notice it's even by the end of this retreat, I'll bet you, if you if you have a really sleepy sitting on Friday, I'll bet you there won't be as much judgment in the mind as there is right now. You can tell me. I'd be curious. Uh, really, it, it's because once you've been there and you've worked with it, you haven't been pushed around by it so much. You know, you, you start developing a certain wisdom about the changing nature of sleepiness, how it arises under certain conditions, usually in the hall. That's the condition. It arises, and then it, it passes away when you get up from the cushion and you head outside. You know, where's that sleepiness? Well, you know, good times are waiting for you, you know. Um, so it is a conditioned state. And the more we can see the fact that, that um, 
that it's a, that all these hindrances, all these challenges, pain, all of them are conditioned states that arise and pass away. The less reactive we become, and the more confidence we develop. Because when we don't get overwhelmed, you know, when we really don't get overwhelmed by these hindrances, when we learn through practice, through patience, a tremendous amount of confidence comes in our practice. It really becomes unshakable. In other words, no matter what the experience is, no matter what the experience is, we respond to it in a different way. We try, at least try to be mindful of it. And what happens is the mind begins to find this natural balance that's not conditioned on having one experience, but rather it comes through hard-earned, wise effort to not get hooked by your experience, but instead to just simply be aware of it. And then the mind gradually, slowly subsides and becomes less reactive. And it's that power of equanimity that really generates a lot of faith and confidence. So bringing that power of awareness or equanimity to the, to the mental state of self-doubt, to that energy. You know, in seeing self-doubt, confidence comes when you can face self-doubt. It doesn't push you around. Nothing wrong with self-doubt. If it pushes you around, it can be very painful. But if you can just see it, it'll come and go, just like any other state of mind. So developing equanimity is one way of uh, developing confidence, faith. And finally, understanding the wisdom, confidence that comes out of seeing things as they are. Well, that's the kind of confidence that's unshakable. You know, that's the kind of confidence that uh, you know, really comes from gentle perseverance through whatever the experience is that you're having. Whatever's happening in the present moment, if you can keep looking at it, keep being with it, you know, working on, on being very accepting and open to what's there, more and more we begin to understand the nature of our suffering. You know, we begin to see our suffering without reacting so much. And then we begin to see, because we're not reacting to it so much, we begin to see, understand the cause of our suffering, the cause being clinging to the things that are changing or pushing things away. We begin to understand that nature, not on analyzing, not by figuring it out, but by seeing it very directly for ourselves. We begin to understand the nature of suffering. We begin to understand the liberation from suffering. When we begin to let go and just settle in and be open to what's happening without reacting, we begin to taste really unconditioned peace. And then we also begin to understand the path. We can only understand the path by walking on it. You can read everything you want, but you need to walk on it. And that's exactly what everybody's doing right now. Whether it's in this context or whether you're doing a practice out there, whether you're turning in that direction, that's what you're doing, is you're walking on this path that really does lead to freedom. But it does take a lot of patience. Okay. Thank you. Let's sit for half a minute.